You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn J-Town. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we might experience true flourishing. Before we do, I want to just kind of get you up to speed really quick, right? So we're going to look at the text that we all, we all know about Jesus going into the uh, temple, right? Causing a big ruckus there. But right before that is an event that's connected to it, uh, and Jesus comes in as, uh, as the king, right? Riding on a colt. And, and, and Matthew says this was to fulfill this was, this was, to, fu- this was to fulfill the, uh, the words of the prophets, right? Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And the people are saying, who is this guy? And some are saying, well, he's a prophet. Really, a prophet from where? Nazareth. Oh. So Jesus comes in as king. Some are identifying him as prophet. And what happens at the temple next is sort of like direct connection. So when he comes in as king, enters into Jerusalem, there's this big sort of celebration around him. It's not as though he came to Jerusalem and said, looked at the disciples and said, okay, what do you guys want to do now? You're like, I don't know, let's take in some sights. Let's go up to the temple. That sounds like a good idea. Let's go up to the temple. No. He enters Jerusalem, purposefully goes to the temple. It's part of the same thing. But remember, He's going up to the temple as king and prophet. So with that in mind, our text today is Matthew 21, verses 12 to 22. And if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Jesus went into the temple... And threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, And the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant and said, do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, yes. Have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. Then he left them, went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Early in the morning, he was returning to the city, and he was hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves and said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And at once the fig tree withered. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed and said, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will Not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will open our hearts to hear you, to receive your word, to be searched by it, 
opened up by it, that you would get into the deep places of our hearts and our minds. Lord, keep us from just being observers of your word, sitting back and looking at it or listening to it, but draw us in. And we need you to do this, Lord. We will not draw ourselves in. We need you to draw us in. Give us just a momentary break from all the various anxieties and fears and worries, confusion or doubts or uncertainties that, we're, that are surrounding us these days so that we might be nourished and refreshed by meeting you in your word. Minister to us, Lord, through the power of the Spirit. And fulfill your promise, Lord, to keep conforming us to the image of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Warnings. What do you do when you read them in the Bible? Right? I mean, there's a pretty stiff warning here. Two of them, actually. Right? One of them is really clear. Jesus acts it out. And then you have this sort of strange thing with the tree that we'll talk about later. And judgment. Right? Clearly, it's judgment. There's tons of judgment taking place here. What do you do if you're a believer in Jesus and you come to a text that's a a warning or a text that's about judgment? What do you do when you read it or how do you think about it or if you hear about it? Well, I think we tend to to respond in sort of different ways. One way might simply be we just kind of look at it as a, a story in history where Jesus went to the temple there's a whole bunch of bad stuff happened there. And so he sort of threw down on them. They got what they deserved. It's sort of like a, yeah, get them, Jesus, sort of way of looking at it. Like, yeah, get them. Drive them out of there. I wish I'd have been there. I'd have helped you. Now, maybe not that aggressive, right? But something like maybe a little toned down version of that, right? So here's Jesus doing what he has the authority to do. And these people got what they deserved. Good for him. Now, another way we might look at it, as believers, now, specifically, right? Well, I guess one thing we could do is just sort of ignore them. But but as believers, we might hear something like this. You better be careful. Because God is a consuming fire. And He will not tolerate hypocrisy or sin. And you know what? That's absolutely true. But that's kind of like one end of the spectrum. I mean, among Christians. I'm going to keep repeating that. On the other other side, and this is also true, you might come to this and think or hear. Now, remember, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. The judgment that was coming upon you has been taken by Christ born by him on the cross, and by the power of his death, burial, and resurrection, you are free. The judgment has passed from you to him. That's also true. Right? On one hand, on one hand, we're, we're rightly, you know, sort of emphasizing God's righteous judgment against sin. On the other, we are giving thanks and recognizing that, yeah, I deserve judgment, but it is passed to Jesus. But then we read these warnings, what do we really, how do we receive them? 
or do we? And I mean, there's warnings all over the place. You know, and all these books are written to believers. How do we receive them, though, as believers? As just, uh, whew, that was a close one for me. But luckily, right, I've avoided all that stuff. Or as we just receive it as fear and anxiety and worry. Well, I got a suggestion. What if the warnings, I mean, for as Christians reading this, what if the warnings aren't simply like a history lesson about something that happened to some people who deserved it way back when? What if they're not just, I said not just, what if they're not just a lesson about Jesus coming with authority as the true temple judging and bringing to an end that part of history and showing himself to be the true temple. What if, in addition to that, what if it's a warning that God extends to us for our good? Like, what if it's something that we're meant to hear? And it's good for us, not to frighten us and scare us, not to remind us that God is boss and he'll get you, right? Because he's God. He's in the business of getting people who get out of line. That's what he does, right? Now, we don't really think of God that way, but practically we sometimes act like he's that way. Or maybe we just look at these and think, I don't even want to think about them. But what if warnings in the Bible, warnings received and heard and read by Christians are basically doing what warnings do in our everyday life. Like, for instance, if you've ever been around kids or if you yourself were, if you were, you yourself were ever a child, you were probably warned by stuff, not just because somebody was out to get you. Probably, maybe even people who loved you gave you warnings and not just to show you, you better do it or else I'm going to be all over you. Right? I mean, I can remember, I can't, I've already forgotten all the warnings that I've gotten. I mean, there's so many. My whole life feels like every day was warnings. Right? And there's the standard ones, right? Like, don't stick your finger in that socket. And that's not because, because if you do, I'm going to be all over you. Right? Don't touch that boiling water. Don't stick your finger in there because if you do, I'm going to ground you for eight weeks just to show you. No, it's to keep you safe, right? And we don't, we don't hear those sorts of warnings and think, oh, man, well, that's just not fair, getting these warnings. doesn't apply to me. No, warnings, one of the ways, one, one of the ways that warnings work is they keep us safe. They keep us from harm. They keep us alive. And what if biblical warnings do the same thing? Now, I'm going to guess that everybody in here believes that God uses all kinds of different things to make us and to lead us into believing, for instance. Right? Everybody in here who came to faith, you came to faith because why? Because in the providence of God, the Word of God was used in your life for you. To, in other words, something was used in your life for you to become a Christian. 
You heard the word. You weren't just sort of sitting out in the field or in a room and all of a sudden, shazam, you became a Christian apart from a word spoken to you, right? You, be, you became a Christian because God used the power of His Word spoken to you for you to become a believer. Everybody in here believes that, that God used something. Everybody in here believes that God uses prayer. We talk about this all the time. We believe it. What if God also uses warnings? What if God also uses warnings to protect us? to guide us, to redirect us? What if the warnings are the thing that God uses to assure our perseverance? We believe in salvation by hearing the Word. We believe in prayer. What about believing in perseverance and God using those warnings as a way of creating this perseverance and as a way of pointing us to faith, and promise. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. But before we do, I'm just going to give you a couple examples of warnings that sort of prove, well, I don't know if they prove, in my mind, they kind of prove the point. So the first one, you've all seen this sign. What do you do when you see it? Right, where I'm from, I'm from West Virginia, that sign is everywhere. That and deer signs with bullet holes on them. So that sign is everywhere. What do you do when you see it? Floor it? No. What do you do? You slow down. Why? Because you want to live. Why they put that sign up? Well, maybe it's not maybe the Department of Highways loves you, but they don't want to clean you up off the bottom of the road or off the bottom of the ditch. And so they put this sign up to do what? To keep you alive. What does it do? Keeps you alive. Got another one. Doctor's office, right? See that? What do you do? Stick your hand in? Get a big handful of stuff out of there? Hey, what's in there? Look, some needles. Let me put my hand in there. And then that's, I don't know what that is, but it's squishy. <laughs> I'm going to grab it, obviously. No, you don't. Why? This tells you not to. And some of us, you see that, you don't even get, you don't even get with like three feet of it. Okay, so stuff jumps out at you. Why? Because that thing saves your life. You can say it doesn't. It does. Here's another one. No idea. Okay, some of you look upset by this. It's a joke, right? I guess if you're from, this might be a sign from Texas is what I'm supposing. Because it's like a hedgehog. Warning, hedgehog crossing. Now, if that was in West Virginia, you'd be shot to death. That sign would be. So my guess is you, you wreck. You see this sign, you wreck trying to figure out what this sign is all about. But apparently it's like, look out, don't run over these hedgehogs. I don't know if it really saves your life, right? There'd have to be like a thousand of them out there. But yeah, so anyway, I'm sorry. I apologized to the first service and I said, I told myself I wasn't going to use it, but it took me a long time to find this. I'm getting the most out of it I can, all right? So if you want to come give me a hard time about it later. I would do it again too, by the way. Next one, finally, what do you do? Climb up, like you're out with your kids, you see this, and they're like, hey, what's that? I don't know, climb up and see. Now you stay off of it, why? You don't even get close to it. You don't even like get there and like, I'm gonna see how close I can get. No, why? Because that sign saves you. Sign, you walk away from that fence, 
completely unscathed. I mean, you're meant to because of that sign. What if Bible warnings do that too for believers? What if they do all those things, all the things I've said so far, including serve a purpose for us so that we can actually be in, not just look at them as for other people and not just only look at them as like what would have come upon us if we had not been, if we, if we were not believers in Jesus, but those are true. But what if they also are meant to enter into us, engage us, and it's God's way of providing for us and pointing us to hope and promise? I think they function like that too. So you know this, you know this scene. Jesus goes into the temple and it's a mess there. He goes up to the temple and they're selling all these sacrifices. Now, I'm just going to say it right off the bat. I don't think the big deal here is that people, that money is changing hands. I don't think it's, I don't think, in other words, I don't think Jesus is condemning business. I don't think he's condemning commerce. I don't think he's condemning sort of any sort of financial system. I think he probably is condemning some kind of maybe financial kickback that people are getting. I don't think Jesus really cares too much about the fact that people are selling sacrifices. I mean, it's, it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, a lot of people are traveling from Jerusalem. What are you supposed to do? Like bring a whole bunch of bloody parts with you, like miles and miles away in the Mideastern, like 112 degrees. Is everybody supposed to bring their animals down there then just sort of gather around and cut them up themselves? Like just anywhere they can find a little corner of Jerusalem? No, I don't think Jesus is simply saying This money changing is bad. It's way more than that. It's way more than that. Jesus is condemning the whole entire atmosphere, the whole entire thing here because, now happily, I uncovered a first century photo, very, very rare, of the temple. It's amazing, really. I mean, that's pretty good resolution considering it's a 2,000-year-old picture. And so... <laughs> Right? Obviously, I'm not even going to explain it. Jesus goes in, so there's the temple, or, you know, reproduction, I'm guessing. It's not in like where those huge menorahs are. Those are huge menorahs. Right? I just, just noticed that for the first, I think they're gigantic. Right? But anyway, whatever the case, it's in that outside part, out there where people are milling around. That would be the court of the Gentiles. This is where Gentiles could go. And they were welcome to come to this part. Now, there was a warning wall that says to the Gentiles, no further. And it was like, you know, no, no further. We're really, really serious about this. You better not come one more step. But they could gather out in this court to do what? They could come to the temple. They were invited. They could come. They had a place. There was a court for women and a court for the men, and then on and on back for the back in the big part would be the holy of holies, rolling the priest It's like a whole complex. It's not just one building. It's a complex of things. And so the 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 sacrifices or the animals for sacrifice are being sold out there in this court of the Gentiles. That even though it's Gentiles, it is meant to be. It's part of the temple complex. It's meant to be a place where people can come and worship, and pray, and take part in the temple. And I think that's what gets Jesus all fired up. 
not simply only that there's money being exchanged. That's just a little part of it. And it makes, because if you think about it, when Jesus, when Jesus is doing this, right, he just sort of flies into it. That would have been hugely crowded, right? Uh, if you've ever seen a movie about it, that event was probably not exactly accurate in the movie you saw. I mean, it was huge space. It was already like tons of, like a million things going on. It's like a zoo, right? They've essentially turned it into like first century Walmart for sacrifices or Peddler's Mall. If you like Peddler's Mall, I'm sorry. I didn't, I'm not making fun of it, but don't ask me to go there. But whatever the case, that's what they've done. And Jesus is doing this, but he's quoting the Bible. Now, a really, a really easy thing to do if you're reading the Bible and you're reading the New Testament and you see a quote from the Old Testament is just take like a minute to go back and read what's around that quote. And if you do that for both of these, because he quotes from Isaiah and then he quotes from Jeremiah, I think it becomes even clearer what Jesus is really about. And it's not simply no business in the temple. If that's included, but that's like just the tip of the iceberg. So if you go back and read, he quotes Isaiah 56, 7, my house will be called a house of prayer. Here's what else he says. I'll just skip down halfway. I will bring them, that is those from the outside, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. This is what this is what Jesus is all about. It's not simply, hey, no money here. Right? They, so it's not, just the, it's not just the financial part. And it's not just simply selling sacrifices. It's where they're doing it and how. That's the big deal. And then Jer- he quotes Jeremiah 7, 11. He says, this den of thieves, you've turned into a den of thieves. Well, listen to what Jeremiah has to say. He says, this is, what, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says, correct your ways and your actions and I will allow you to live in this place. Do not trust deceitful words chanting, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord. In other words, don't be presumptuous. That's the whole deal of thinking, no matter how you're living, no matter what you're doing, no matter how little you're showing any sort of faithfulness, do not look and think, but... I'm good to go because I'm part of the true people of God and I can prove it by pointing this temple. Look, the temple. That's what he's saying to them. You can't just presume because being the people of God is not simply going to the temple or thinking I'm good because I'm going to the temple. Instead, if you really correct your ways and your actions, if you act justly towards one another, if you no longer oppress the aliens, no longer oppress the fatherless and the widow and no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow other gods, bringing harm on yourselves. Then I will allow you to live in this place, the land I gave your ancestors. But look, you keep trusting in deceitful words that cannot help. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers in your view? That's the bigger picture of what Jesus is after here. Not just sort of quashing business. Right? That's included, but that's just a little piece of it. So Jesus is condemning the entire scene, all of it. 
And he's doing it as one who has authority because in addition to, in addition to um, condemning the hypocrisy, in addition to condemning the presumption, and in addition to condemning the fact that they are, that they are pushing others out, that they're excluding others who have a right to be there, He's also himself the true temple who comes and he shows it. He shows that he is. Essentially what Jesus says that day is, he judges it, he judges the whole thing and also essentially says this, we're done. This, we're, this part, we're done with this. This building, we're done. We're done. And not just because he's tired of it, but because he himself has arrived because the true temple, and this is what he says, you might remember back when, when Pastor Lyle was preaching in chapter 12, we heard this text, Jesus says to them, something greater than the temple is here. What's that something greater? It's him. So this something greater than the temple, who in fact is the fulfillment of everything the temple was meant to be, he's come. And so simultaneously he says, Enough with your hypocrisy, enough with your presumption, enough with your exclusion, and what's more, I'm here to put this all to an end. But he doesn't just sort of say things, then he shows it, because look what happens right after this. Right after this big, this big um, sort of tumult, everything that's happening, look what, look what happens. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So what happened to them? They came to the temple, and what did they receive? Mercy and compassion and acceptance and relief. Exactly what's supposed to happen when you go to the temple. And they brought nothing with them. They didn't bring anything with them, but what? Their blindness. Their ailments. They didn't come prepared with anything. They came to receive, which is what you do at the temple, right? Now, I understand you, you offer sacrifices, but they came to receive. And what happened? They received freely from the one who is the fulfillment of everything that temple was pointing towards. And he heals them right there. And not just because it's handy. He's like, oh, here's some people with, I'm okay. I'm going to heal them too, right? Turn these tables over. Here's some people, check. Heal them, go about my business. Nope, it's all part of the same scene. It's also part of him showing why he has the authority to do what he's just done. Because at that building, this thing is, this, this kind of thing that Jesus is doing, it's not getting done at all. And so he condemns it. And then the high priests see it. And then you have these kids yelling out, right? So there's this zoo going on, basically. And the high priests come up and say, we cannot have these kids yelling in here. Right? I mean, never mind what's going on behind us with all this racket. But the last thing we can have are these kids running around. I mean, like, this is a holy place, after all. And what does Jesus say to them? 
Well, actually, before that, they say to Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? They're mad about what the kids are saying too because they're saying Hosea to the son of David, which they probably heard, right? When Jesus came in, they'd probably been there. They'd heard it. They're repeating it. And they're like, do you hear what they're saying to you? And Jesus says, it's a great. He's like, yeah, I do. You know why? I've read Psalm 8. Have you? I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it really is. I mean, it's just, he just gives them this answer. They're like, have you heard this? He's like, yeah, I've heard it. Not only that, I've read it. Haven't you read it? You're experts. And in that Psalm, it says that God is going to get praise from children. And basically Jesus says to them, yeah, you know that? It's me. The praise that God has reserved for himself from children that he himself is going to get, he is getting that day in the flesh, as he comes to say, I'm here. And those who should have recognized it, those who think they're leading the, those who think they're leading the nation in religion, in practice, in sacrifices, and everything else, they have zero idea who he is. All the while, they're there at this place that is meant to be holy. It's meant to be where the presence of God dwells, and they have turned it into nothing but like a flea market. And in doing so, have excluded and not welcoming the people who are meant to be there. And Jesus brings it to an end. So you have this warning sign, right? The overturning of the the booze, and then you have the sign of promise and faith, which you see in the healing of the blind and the lame. And then this warning and then sign of promise gets repeated the next day. As Jesus goes out, he comes in. Now, we all know this story. So Jesus gets up the next day. He's hungry. But this is one of those stories we all know, but we don't talk about a whole lot. I mean, after all, what does Jesus have against fig trees? I saw a meme that says, God hates figs. Dot, dot, dot. And maybe you too. The idea being like, hey, if Jesus has got it in for trees randomly, what hope does anybody have? Of course, it was making fun of the whole thing. There's a fig tree, in case you're wondering. I was going to take a picture of the one we have, but it's in a pot like this big. It's not super impressive. And it's kind of wilted. So actually, that would have fit. Actually, I could be like, hey, here's the tree, right? I've preserved a little bit of it. So that's a, that's a fig tree. And there's lots of different kinds. Now, you also know from, if you've read Mark, that Mark says it wasn't the season for figs. That just seems to pile it on. So now it's like we're feeling super sorry for this tree. Because not only is this tree just sitting there minding its own business, just being tree-ish, Jesus comes up to it. It's not even the season for figs. So not only is it unfair for Jesus to like take it out on this tree, this tree can't even help it. It's not the season for it, right? Just like kicking the tree while it's down. Like, like it's just like, I mean, honestly, we sometimes like, what does Jesus, does he just lose his temper? Is he still riled up from the temple thing? He's like, ugh, right? Like the way maybe if you're, if you've got a weed eater and for the 1,000th time, the the, the, the string has gone up into the spool and you can't stand it anymore, so you sling it and then kick a garbage can. I, that's not a story from real life necessarily. And if it was, I'm not condoning it. Possible that something like that has happened in the vicinity of my neighborhood. 
Is Jesus just getting mad? No. I mean, why does he do it? Well, there's some technical stuff we could suggest that may make it a little bit more easy to get along with, like that, and this is true, I can attest to this myself, that early in the season, a fig tree will have these little figs on it. They're not really good to go, but you can eat them. But I, I think I hear stuff like that, and I think that's just somebody saying that's true and then trying to make this story a little better. The fact is, you know what a parable is, right? Everybody does. This is, just, this is a living parable, and it's an extension of what Jesus has just done at the temple. And then it turns into this weird discussion about faith and mountains and all this. I mean, think about it. How do these things even fit together? It's kind of weird. But I think the way it fits together is this, is Jesus, is, Jesus acts out this parable that turns out to be, again, it's like a parable of judgment, but it's a parable that points them to hope and promise. But the, the thing is, is the fig tree thing is connected to Jesus's ministry, like what he's just done as he's come in fulfillment, just, and think, I'm not going to repeat it all, but think about everything that just happened in the temple, and the way I sort of describe what's going on, that it's the true temple who's come, and he's judging the temple, and he's judging hypocrisy, but he's pointing the way towards promise and faith. This is happening with this tree too. So Jesus sees this tree, and the disciples see it, and they're like, hey, how did that happen? Now, on one level, you could think, they've seen this guy walk on water. Seriously, they're like blown away by this tree withering. They've seen him do all kinds of stuff. Well, it's still pretty cool, I guess. Well, maybe not cool, sorry. It's, it's, it gets your attention if a tree gets withered up. But what they're asking, I think, is revealed in the way Jesus answers. Because he gives them an answer that sort of sounds kind of strange, right? I mean, look what he says to them. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt... You will not only do what's done to this fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain be lifted and thrown in the sea, it will be done. I mean, that's a weird answer, right? Think about it. How do these leaves wither so quick? I tell you what, if you have faith, you can do this and throw that mountain into the sea. Doesn't really sound like the answer to their question, right? But I think the answer to their question helps us understand what it is they're asking. They're basically asking, how, how do we do this? Or what does this mean for us? I think that's kind of what they're asking. Because that makes sense of Jesus' answer. Now, you might remember back in chapter 17, they had this encounter where they weren't able to help a guy possessed. And Jesus comes down and says, this because you don't have any faith. But if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to a mountain, be thrown in the sea and it would happen. So I think they get to this point and Jesus is saying, that's all behind us. And I think what Jesus is doing is he's inviting them. He's inviting them and drawing them. So you have this sign of warning that then is turned into a sign of faith and promise. I think what he's doing is telling this, that he's talking about the way he is going to equip them to continue on. When he says greater things than this, I don't think he means like oak trees, right? Or just geological feats of strength. I think greater things than these, he is talking about the extension of the ministry of the kingdom in the ministry of the apostles. That's the greater things, not just greater sort of natural feats of miracle strength. So he's, he's, he's calling them, he's drawing them in. He goes from this warning, he shows it, 
right? Which is a, a sign of his own authority. It, it, it mirrors what he's just done at the temple. And then he says to them, you're going to do greater things than this. Because what Je- the great thing that Jesus does is not simply have a tree wither up. It's, it becomes a symbol of his ministry, what he's just done there in Jerusalem and what he's still doing. And so I think what he's doing is he's calling them in, right? The, by the warning, it's directed them. Now it's, but it's not just to have warning, hey, look out. It's a warning that directs them to what? Puts them on the right path. Calls them to faith and promise as he calls them in and draws them in. And so when he says, whatever you ask, I don't think he's saying, you know, have a new bike if you want it. If you just ask right, I don't know why I said bike. I think it's like the ninth time I've used bike as an illustration in here, but clearly I want a new bike and I keep talking about it over and over again, but I'm still not getting it. So maybe I should just read this text again. But whatever the case, I think he's speaking of their coming gospel ministry that will include everything that Jesus has just done. And he will give them the strength and the power To do what? To do things like have the courage to proclaim the warning of judgment upon the rejection of God or God's judgment or, you know, applying the law, right? This part of the preaching the gospel, proclaiming a warning for people's good, not just, "Ah, God's going to get you one day. You keep this sinning up. Can't wait to see it. No, why do we warn people? To save them right? Why do we share with people the reality of the judgment of God? Just to say like, yeah, you can either repent or one day we'll be like, told you so. Got what you deserved, didn't you? No. We warn people not because we love judgment. We warn people because we want, we want to be used by God to save people from judgment, right? And, and not exclude anybody from that message, Regardless of whether they look like us, act like us, talk like us, if they're out doing things that we would turn our back on and wish we never even knew happened, we don't just go to say to them, that sort of behavior will get you to hell. No, we go to say to them, repent and believe the gospel. Right? And in this way, what do we do? In this way, we've stopped becoming hypocritical. We stop becoming presumptuous that we're the people of God. We're the people of God. We're the people of God. We go to church. We go to church. We go to church. And so it it warns us. It exposes us. That's what it does. The Word of God has to get in us and expose us. But not just expose us and leave us bare, but expose us and do surgery on us and then close us back up in faith and promise so that we can go and live the lives that Jesus has given us, ministering His gospel, doing not not greater, like, hey, we're even better than Jesus, but extending that ministry of Jesus out into the world as a message of hope and a message of promise, having the courage to announce God's judgment and extending mercy and compassion regardless as those who have what? Received mercy and compassion. And so I think that's what's happening here. The warnings, the warnings for us, the warnings for us are serving this purpose to guide us and point us to this life and ministry 
just like Jesus, of extending the mercy and compassion and love of the kingdom. So don't avoid the warnings, but don't hear in them the final word. They're there to, they're there to guide us back, to keep us, what? Ministering for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of others. And this gospel was shown to us in a live act. And in a moment, we're going to take this cup and share in the Lord's Supper together as we celebrate the final, last, and true sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And what? An act of God's judgment, His eternal judgment on His own Son so that we might live. Let's pray together. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash J-Town.